welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today I'm joined by Chris Ward and Ryan Foley, who co-authored ABI's newest publication entitled A Business Creditor's Guide to Distressed Vendors, Debt Collection, and Bankruptcy. Our podcast will explore this book and its importance for bankruptcy practitioners. By way of introduction, Chris chairs Polsonelli PC's Bankruptcy and Financial Restructuring Practice and is a managing shareholder of the firm's Wilmington, Delaware office. He focuses his practice on corporate bankruptcy, financial restructuring, bankruptcy litigation, and distressed asset sales, as well as non-bankruptcy alternatives, and has represented numerous Chapter 11 debtors and unsecured creditors committees. Chris is a member of ABI's Board of Directors, as well as Polsonelli's Board of Directors. Along with many other industry awards, Chris has been listed in the Best Lawyers in America for Bankruptcy and Restructuring in Delaware since 2015. Chris also is an editor and contributor to the app version of Polsonelli's The Devil's Dictionary of Bankruptcy Terms, which is available for free on iTunes. He was also the editor and an author of ABI's publication entitled The Chief Restructuring Officer's Guide to Bankruptcy. Chris's co-author, Ryan, is a partner at Shook, Hardy, and Bacon, where he co-chairs the firm's Bankruptcy and Creditors' Rights Practice Group and represents secured and unsecured creditors, lessers, lessees, and investors in issues related to bankruptcy, insolvency, and debt restructuring. He has represented Chapter 7 trustees in avoidance actions and handles a variety of consumer litigation matters, including claims relating to the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and various other state consumer protection statutes. He is a registered mediator with the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the District of Delaware and is board certified in creditor's rights law by the American Board of Certification. Ryan has been a presenter on bankruptcy topics and is a frequent writer, having been published numerous times in the ABI Journal and elsewhere. And earlier this month, Ryan was named ABI's 2017 40 Under 40 honoree. Welcome, Chris and Ryan, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for having us, Amy. So this this new book is a great uh, addition to the ABI library. Can you tell uh, the listeners how the book came about and who you, who is your intended audience? Hey, Amy, this is Chris. I think that the book came about because this area of the law is a burgeoning area. Um, it's something that's been out there for quite a long time, dealing with distressed investors. But I think in recent times, we've seen more Chapter 11 bankruptcies um, where distressed investors are turning to bankruptcy in order to cure their insolvency needs. Um, so it's something that Ryan and I discussed and thought it would be best to get in front of general counsel, credit managers, CFOs, attorneys, or just plain lay business people in order to prepare them for bankruptcy and to pre-plan for the avoidance of these issues in the future. And that's exactly the, the theme and message of your book seems to be be prepared. So what are some of the warning signs that a credit manager can look for in a vendor to determine whether the vendor is entering into distress and may have issues? I think a primary thing that, this is Ryan, by the way, I think a primary thing that comes up, Amy, is, um, you know, when you have a, a long-term relationship with a, a customer, if you will, or a client, and uh, they've been usually very good payers within reasonable terms, you know, the 30, 45 day window. And then all of a sudden, you know, they, 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 the, the payments get a little bit later. There's a phone call to the, to the salesperson they've been working with or to a credit manager asking for an extension of time. And, you know, those, and then it just kind of, it's like snowball after that. It just snowballs and the, 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 um, the balances get bigger, the months go by. And at the end of the day, um, because there's a relationship, People kind of let it go a little bit. I think particularly the, the salespeople kind of let it go a little bit in order to keep the business. Uh, but those are definitely, that's definitely just one example of red flags, like the extension of, 
of what ends up being credit when you didn't intend to extend, extend credit of, of, of um, outstanding balances. That's, that's one red flag I think that comes up fairly frequently. Yeah, Amy, this is Chris. I completely agree with Ryan. I think uh, constant vigilance is the, the term to use here. You have to follow the AR. And if the AR starts to grow, you, you have to get out in front of it because once it grows to 90, 120 days, it's too late at that point. So you need to be vigilant about following the AR of your company. And and so um, your book, you know, is very comprehensive about um, some pre-planning tools that business, businesses can use to protect themselves against those um, distressed investors who find themselves, um, you know, using more credit. And um, the first one you mentioned is effective debt collection. But of course, uh, as we all know recently, that comes with its own traps and pitfalls for a business trying to stay in line with, of course, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Can you all address this in your book, but can you briefly briefly discuss the statute and some of the things that business manager, managers should do to avoid on the receiving end of FDCPA enforcement actions? Sure, sure. This is Ryan. I think you know one thing to keep in mind is um, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, uh, FDCPA, um, for sake of brevity, is is, is, a, is a statute that only applies to third-party debt collectors. Um, so, you know, some of our intended audience, as you, as, you, as Chris kind of highlighted before, uh, general counsels, chief litigation officers, credit managers, etc. If you're on the, if you're collecting your own debt, um, and, and let, me, let me specify that, you know, this FECPA is applicable to consumer debt collection only. But if you're collecting your own debt, um, the FDCPA is not going to apply to you. Now, um, there has been, um, uh, there's certainly case law out there where um, plaintiff attorneys, uh, plaintiff consumer attorneys have uh, tried to, uh, you know, kind of spread that out where a subsidiary of, that's collecting on behalf of a parent company falls into the third party um, kind of uh, category, if you will, and therefore they're liable but under the FDCPA. But, you know, primarily it's, it's, it's when the situation of the FDCPA arrives when uh, the, the corporation sends the debt out to a collection agency or a law firm. Now, that collection agency or law firm is now a third-party debt collector. Therefore, when they go to collect consumer debt, the FDCPA applies to them. So the, uh, so they have to be the ones that are, are responsible under the FDCPA, the, the, the law firm, the collection agency. What a, uh, you know, what a, a general counsel or, or business people or credit managers have to be wary of is, you know, who are you sending your debt to? What kind of diligence uh, have you done to investigate that your third party that's collecting your debt um, is, you know, above board with respect to its collection activities? Are they following the FDCPA? Um, are they bonded? Are they um, uh, a part of the, you know, the various trade associations that, you know, in the creditors' rights or universe that they're, they're all connected to that so that therefore they're doing what's best because at the end of the day, even though, you know, you're kind of, outsourcing your that collection activity, you know, your company's name is still going to be on those, that paper. If it gets to a demand letter or if it gets to a complaint, like that's going to be your name. Now, the FDCPA not, might not circle back up to you um, because, again, it's third-party specific, but it's also good. Your name is going to be out there. So there's definitely commercial damage that could happen um, if that third party is not um, handling the, the debt collection appropriately. Um, there's also occasions where the the the, the corporation would be named in, the, in an FDCPA lawsuit, a consumer kind of plaintiff action, but um, very quickly can be removed from that. But I think it's more just to be just to know about that statute, understand its ramifications, and it's really a guide to who's collecting my debt and my are they uh, above board with 
with everything they're doing. I think that's a, a important, an important takeaway when it comes to FDCPA. That, those are really important points. And, and similarly, your, the book talks about the Fair Credit Reporting Act and, of course, um, credit reports and how um, useful they can be um, to assess a vendor's financial health. But why, um, why must business creditors really pay attention to the Fair Credit Reporting Act? This is Ryan. I think, um, you know, part of it is what you want to make sure you're doing is you're, you know, you could really have, um, if, if you, if you miss, if the, if the, the, the report that you're, the, the credit report you're using is misused in any fashion by people on your team that might be doing the, the debt collection or managing the outside firms or agencies that are handling debt collection. If it, it's, it's misused in any way and reported incorrectly, um, you could have a big problem. I mean, you could have a big problem with damaging someone's uh, credit. Um, and if you're doing that, um, you know, that's going to make it hard for that person to get, you know, to get loans and do various things they want to do in their lives. And I think that um, it's, it's, you must be mindful of the impact of, of how you're handling that. And the way to do that is by having the appropriate procedures built internally to manage, you know, how are we, all right, so we're going to run the FERC, we're going to get our credit report, and then what are we going to do with it? Well, here's the steps that you created internally. Here's the, the guideline, the guidelines, if you will, for how you go about using that um, that credit report on that individual. Because if you if you run afoul of that, you know you're going to have you could have some significant impact on that person's credit. Also, then you know that's going to get turned around, and and then you know um, uh, you know you're going to get sued um, by a plaintiff's consumer attorney and called all sorts of unnecessary um, legal expense for yourself and. If you're a you know if you're a big company that uses that you know take a credit card company if you will if you use tons of, of um, uh, credit reports on a daily basis and and, and there's a there's a bad egg <laughs> utilizing those credit reports you're, you're, you know ultimately you could be looking at a class action lawsuit that you know then all of a sudden not only you're defending that you're spending millions of dollars on attorney fees but um, you know your name's getting dragged through the mud in all the papers um, because of, of you know of what happened with the use of the credit report and. That's why I think the takeaway there is to really have strong internal guidelines built and discipline when utilizing uh, any kind of credit report. I think those are all really good points. And, and I like the fact that your book um, goes into that, goes into the Fair Credit Reporting Act and the FDCPA uh, and talks about those because a lot of, you know, a lot of books that are guiding, um, you know, general counsel, they don't. They just kind of say, well, this is the collection process. This is how you litigate, you know, and these are all important things, practical things that, uh, you know, credit managers and um, folks coll collecting debt uh, really need to know about. So there's a lot more of that in the book. Um, you also mentioned in the book the um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is the primary enforcer of violations of consumer finance protection laws. Um, a couple questions that I have about that, and I think you address in the book, but do all business creditors need to worry about the CFPB? And what are the issues that um, the CFPB is most concerned about that we're seeing in enforcement actions these days? And can you briefly describe the process for the CFPB to bring an action against a creditor? Yeah, I mean, the CFPB is in, in today's world is, is very interesting, and it's getting some headlines recently. And if, if anyone has seen that with respect to the, the kind of the... Um, uh, the new leadership um, at the CFPB, um, and it, it, it's, and I'm stuttering because I'm just saying I'm, I'm somewhat smiling thinking about it. It's just very strange that how the political winds shift. All of a sudden, the mm -hmm. relevancy of the CFPB is is somewhat in flux. Um, I think from 2012 till maybe maybe slightly before that, um, at, the, at the tail end of the, um, uh, the economic crisis that you know that began in 2008. I think the 
was a very powerful um, um, entity. Um, Elizabeth Warren was one of the first, was the creator of it, and then passed it on to um, the gentleman's name, excuse me, right now, but who just recently left his post. Um, they were enforcing, you know, a lot of it was, you know, treatment of, you know, back in that time frame, 2012, 13, even before that, it was about, you know, uh, a payday lending, um, how the mortgage industry was going about its business, mortgage servicing, sales of mortgages. They kind of turned their spotlight on um, collection agencies and how they went about and and, le- and, and, and leveled significant fines on the collection agency industry. Several, several millions of dollars um, were levied and fined by the CFPB. And, I, I, and then, so that was kind of like, I think, at its height. And um, now it's, it's you know, I got to be honest, I don't know what the, the next, call it three years or so at least, are going to be for the CFPB with the, the changing of the guard, how relevant and how powerful of a, of a, a body of enforcement body it's going to be. Um, but I think to you know, kind of answer your, your point is um, I think all business creditors should worry about it still um, because it is an, a live, active uh, uh, regulatory agency of the federal government. And um, if, if uh, you know, kind of going to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, if you don't have a disciplined internal process for how you manage your collection activities um, or your servicing activities, if you're servicing uh, mortgages, et cetera, um, you're going to you could have some trouble um, with the CFPB still. Um, I think you know part of it. What happens is it's not it's not dissimilar. I think from the initiation of a of a um, uh, an act, being an action against a creditor. I, I think it, it starts like uh, like anything in, in any state where you complain to the, the attorney general about something that happened. Um, you know, there's a hotline. There's an email. If you go to CFPB's website, you can submit a, a, a problem that you had with a a collection agency or a creditor or some fashion or a bank, um, and that kind of kicks off the process and. And there's there's uh, you know a government worker that will contact that creditor and or contact you excuse me that, that raised the issue and seek additional information and they'll do their own kind of internal investigation but you know there is a limit to what they do they kind of only focus on the financial services industry so if you complain about and your mechanic put on the wrong wheel or something like that I don't, that's <laughs> not they're going to be their area uh, they're going to they're going to focus on financial services issues um, but I, I definitely think that. Despite the, the the changing of the political winds, it's definitely something to be mindful of. Just you know, it doesn't. It's not a free for all now. And if you if you go about your uh, approaching your industry, and if you're in that financial services industry, that it's a CFPB is not going to come you know come back to haunt you. I think you're making a big mistake. And a way to avoid that is just making sure those internal processes of what you're doing are tight. Um, you know, it might make sense to hire former workers at the CFPB and get some consulting opportunities in the door to kind of say, hey, this is what we're doing. Does this make sense? Um, I think, you know, um, um, my prior life, I was in-house counsel at a large uh, financial services corporation. And, and uh, it was during that, you know, 2008 till 2000, well, actually the last year. Um, and, you know, regulations and regulatory bodies are all over the place all the time in those time frame. Um, and, you know, it helped straighten a lot of things out. And I think that the CFPB is still going to be able to do that. Right. So if you're dealing with consumer debt, you at least have to know what it is and be aware that there, you know, there are things that um, you can do to protect yourself. Absolutely right. Yep. That's great. And, and all of those details are in the book. Um, so you guys also talk about um, contractual pre- protections that business creditors can put into um, agreements with distressed vendors. Can one of you identify a couple of those types of protections? And are vendors really okay with adding those? Do they have a choice? Do they, I mean, is it all part of negotiation? Yeah, absolutely, Amy. This is Chris. Um, Ryan talked about a lot of the regulatory issues that are out there in trying to 
collect debt. But as we discussed, planning so you don't have that outstanding balance is the best way to go. Um, some of the protections you can put into agreements, uh, my two favorite are what I call a springing security interest, and the second one would be putting payments into escrow. Um, a springing security interest would be a situation where you have a contractual obligation. Um, it's an, on an unsecured basis, but you build into your agreement up front that if payments fall, if any payment is late or if payments fall 90 days behind, that the vendor, that the company can file a security interest against the vendor for those amounts due um, and then uh, have a security interest in the goods. Um, what we've done sometimes is actually have the security interest attached to those vendor agreements and then leave the right to perfect that security interest in the agreement only if there's a default or if payments fall X days behind, which would equal a default. Um, so the security interest springs at a later date. It's not up front, so it's not a secured credit um, that you're offering. It's unsecured credit with the ability to um, provide a security interest down the road if there's a default under the agreement. Right, and you probably want a pretty tight. You probably want a pretty tight leash on that because if they get too far out and they file bankruptcy, you're not able to perfect those security interests, right? So you want to pay attention to those. Absolutely. And if you filed a security interest in the 90 days right. preceding a bankruptcy, it would be preferential and avoidable. Yeah. So right. you, you again, it, it all goes to constant vigilance and staying on top of the account. Mm -hmm. um, the other mechanism that that we've used a lot uh, recently with our clients is having the payments from the uh, the vendor uh, made into escrow, um, either in advance or even contemporaneously, um, so that those payments um, are in escrow, which is outside of a bankruptcy estate. They wouldn't be property of the estate under Section 541 of the Bankruptcy Code, and thus wouldn't be subject to a preferential transfer since they were never property of the estate. Um, those are just two uh, issues that are addressed in the book, but um, you know those are our preferred mechanisms we put into agreements with vendors in order to protect clients. Yes, the vendors push back on those. Uh, absolutely, they, they push back. And mm -hmm. that is, especially on the security interest, one of the reasons that you make it a springing interest at a later date is you know, we're, we're not going to require you to do this now. We're going to give you an agreement. We're going to do it on an unsecured basis. But if you don't live up to your obligations, we have this right to perfect our security interest and have a secured interest but only if you don't live up to your terms right. and obligations. Yeah, so if you're in breach of so, the agreements, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Payments in the escrow are becoming more common um, as we see more Chapter 11s, and especially as Chapter 11s are large preference actions and preference runs. Mm -hmm. um, vendors understand that payments may have to be made in escrow in order to protect them um, or to protect clawback. So that's a little more generally acceptable. Um, but yeah, vendors are becoming just as sophisticated as well, so they, they understand the risks involved in this. Right. I would think that if a vendor refused to make payments into escrow, um, I mean, I guess there maybe is a little bit of additional cost, but they, that, that might be a red flag in and of itself. It, it absolutely is. And that's a lot of vendors um, don't like to do that because it is a red flag and they know that they're dealing with a potentially distressed entity. Yeah. Um, so you have to be very careful when you introduce that. Yeah, right. Well, you know, of course, when vendors don't pay, um, then, you know, you are um, going into litigation. And your book talks about some effective pre-litigation strategies that businesses can use to collect their debts from distressed vendors. And can you guys talk about some of those? Yeah, no, it's Chris again. Let me I, I jump into the one of them is a consent to judgment. Um, if you can have a vendor who knows that, you know, it, it's a 
straight breach of contract action. They bought $100,000 worth of product. They didn't weren't able to pay for it. Um, it's a clear breach of the contract. Uh, rather than spending the money to litigate the breach of contract, um, you know, parties will consent to a judgment, which then you can um, file of record and have, have out there. So, you know, you might not necessarily come ahead of other creditors if you don't have the right to securitize that judgment, but you have the judgment and you're not going to have to litigate the amount of the claim and in the bankruptcy. You're going to have an allowed valid claim um, that, that is going to put you in a spot that's much better better off than in other instances. Um, I think the other pre-litigation strategy is something that uh, we just discussed on the security interest is really the only way to put yourself ahead of other creditors is to increase the priority of your claim. Um, so something like a uh, springing security interest or even a consent to a secured claim for uh, the value of the goods provided is going to elevate your claim above other general and secured creditors. Um, you know, it doesn't overcome the valid first perfected security interest in substantially all of the assets, um, but it does put you in a better position against all other creditors in the case. Right. Yeah. And, you know, when I was practicing, uh, one of the things that really <laughs> frustrated many of my clients um, who happened to be credit managers were, was the preference statute. And, you know, it was kind of like um, rubbing salt in a wound for them. Uh, you know, they were owed hundreds of thousands of dollars, and yet a payment that was made within the 90 days before bankruptcy, they had to give back. <laughs> give back. And so um, can you explain the purpose of the preference statute of 547B? Um, and then, you know, do you have any advice to creditors who are facing avoidance actions? Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it's Chris again. You know, Fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, Congress has approved a statute that allows any payment made by a debtor in the 90 days preceding the bankruptcy to be a de facto preference, preferential payment um, subject to all the defenses provided in the bankruptcy code. Um, the, the times that we've been plaintiffs in these cases, we've received the same calls that you just discussed is, how can you do this? You know, first of all, I don't get, get paid um, for any of the amounts owed to me. And now I'm getting sued for the, the small amount that was paid to me. Um, at the end of the day, the debtor is allowed to do it. Um, but that is why uh, Congress gave the defenses that are out there, the ordinary course of business, new value, contemporaneous exchange um, for those vendors. The purpose behind having this preferential statute um, law is it wants to treat all general and secure creditors equally in that 90-day window leading up to bankruptcy. Um, the person that yells the loudest or threatens the most shouldn't be the creditor that's receiving the lion's share of the debtor's cash going into bankruptcy. So to the extent you are sending dunning letters and demanding payment or threatening to stop shipment um, without receiving payment, that will be held against you in um, any preference action that's bought because you have elevated your claim above claims of other general unsecured creditors. So fair and equitable treatment to all creditors was the purpose. Um, I think the preference statutes morphed in time. Um, the substance of it hasn't changed, but the application of it has. We now see mass preference runs where literally every vendor that received a payment in the 90 days leading up to bankruptcy um, is sued. Whether they have clearly have new value defenses or ordinary course of business defenses. Um, so vendors that receive these letters, especially the, the demand letters before a complaint's filed, um, need to take a look at them and, and see if there's defenses that they have prior to a lawsuit being brought 
because once a lawsuit's brought, you're going to have to incur attorney's fees in order to negotiate, file an answer, appear at an initial scheduling conference. Um, most of the plaintiffs, um, whether they're Chapter 7 trustees or law firms, are going to send out a demand letter first that's going to you know, offer to settle the claim for X percentage of whatever the face value of the preferential payment was. So if you're able to provide defenses and negotiate with plaintiff's counsel prior to suit being brought, you may be able to settle for something far less than you will when a complaint is brought and you have a settlement that's in that same range, but now you've incurred $5,000 of legal fees on top of it. So I, I think the, the advice is don't ignore those letters when they come. Right. Um, they may be demanding 80% of payment, but at the end of the day, negotiation off that letter is going to be far more um, beneficial to you than having a complaint filed and having to deal with defending that complaint uh, later on. Right. And, and also, you know, going along with the theme of your book, probably be prepared. Make sure you have all your records um, together because a lot of times the debtors don't have their records, you know, so they, uh, even though they send you a demand, they may not, you know, they may not have any timing information about payment or, um, or copies of the check or anything. So it's, um, so, you know, I think being prepared in that way probably would go along with the theme of your book. Yep, absolutely. So your book ends with a detailed discussion of bankruptcy and the bankruptcy process, as well as certain non-bankruptcy alternatives. Is it too late for unsecured creditors to collect on their debts if their vendors uh, get to this point? And what should business creditors do as soon as they get notice of a bankruptcy? You know what? I think following up on what you just said, Amy, um, you know, time is of the essence. Be prepared is, is the answer to really everything in this realm. Um, bankruptcy moves fast. When a Chapter 11 petition is filed, um, there's going to be a hearing within 24 or 48 hours. There's going to be a proposed budget filed in the case, whether it's cash collateral, debtor in possession financing, that's going to lay out all the payments that debtors can make. So it's not too late if a bankruptcy is filed, but you do have to be prepared to act quickly. Um, you know, there may be critical vendor status available to you. You're going to want to assure that payment for your goods is accounted for under the budget. You're going to want to make sure that there's no early bar date for either general unsecured claims, administrative claims, or 503B9 claims. Um, maybe an opportunity to serve on a creditors committee um, and then have creditors committee hire counsel and financial advisors, which are paid for by the debtor's estate. Um, but all of this is going to happen or could happen within the first 10 to 14 days of a bankruptcy case. So you need to be prepared to react quickly if you do receive a bankruptcy petition. I think it all falls back to, as you said, you know, be prepared. Yeah, that's all all great advice. And I mean, uh, um, we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to say thank you to both of you for writing the book. I mean, I think it really is a practical guide that um, business people, not not professional, you know, lawyers or financial professionals, but business people will um, really um, find um, helpful. And, uh, you know, perhaps folks might want to give them out as holiday gifts to their clients. So <laughs> they are available right, on the ABI. So. Rightfully so. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, they're available. Uh, the new book can be purchased on the ABI uh, website at abi.org. Um, so, and Chris and Ryan, you should be very proud of yourself. We appreciate all your hard work. Um, and we know it's not easy writing a book, but you all put the time and effort in. And um, we appreciate you also um, coming to the podcast and providing your um, expert advice on this uh, very important topic. Thank you very much, Amy, and thank, thank you to the ABI for everything that it does with respect to educating insolvency professionals. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Yeah, I, I, 
just going to reiterate what Chris said. Thanks, Amy, for, for the time today. And, and, you know, the ADI is the best resource around for information about the insolvency uh, profession. And, and uh, without you guys, we wouldn't have the opportunity to put this book together. So thank you very much. Well, thanks, Ryan. Thank you. From ABI headquarters, thank you for listening and have a great day. Thank you.